I was reading through some, uh, some sermons and some lessons on the book of Colossians this week, and I came to a, a, a message on a blog uh, from a guy named Pastor Glenn. Um, don't know his last name, he just calls himself Glenn, but uh, really was encouraged by, by some of his words. And, and he was talking about uh, Colossians chapter 1, and, and he mentioned uh, a, a place called Speaker's Corner in, in the city of London. Uh, Pastor Glenn's from the southern shore of England, and he shared a few years ago about this place in London. And he described it like this. He said, when I lived in London, one of the things I loved to do on a Sunday was visit Speaker's Corner. Every Sunday at Speaker's Corner, you have the right to go and proclaim whatever you want to proclaim about. Could be true. Could be a pack of lies. It doesn't matter. As long as you're six inches off the ground, you have total freedom of speech, and and you can just let everything fly. And so, um, naturally... Uh, naturally enough, this attracts any number of religious loons, like me, he says. And, and you can wander the length, of, the length of Speaker's Corner and listen to every conceivable word, worldview under the sun. On a sunny day, the speakers will get up on the soapbox and point to the wonder of creation and say, look what God the Ram has done. A few meters down, look what Allah has created. A few meters down from there, look what I've made. Everyone's looking at the same sun shining on the same blades of grass, listening to the same birds, and yet... Whatever creation is saying, we seem to be confused. You know, I was thinking through you know, the, all those different messages that come from the world and, and what people are proclaiming. And, and you see what it comes down to is, is we, have, we have a problem. We in the world that we live in and the universe that our little speck is floating on through space uh, it was all created by a great God. And from this, we know of His eternal power. From this we know of His divine nature, as Romans chapter 1 tells us. And because of, well, because of His handiwork, all of creation declares His glory. All of creation declares the, the wow of God. You look around you and creation shouts out, something bigger than us did all this. Something greater than us, something divine, created all of this. And whoever He is, this something is awesome he's great but his ways are beyond us and what we can know of god is is just a taste of all there is about him even in what he's revealed about himself we're we're just getting a small taste uh, of what we will begin to experience throughout eternity and while creation declares his eternal power and it declares his divine nature the thing is, is 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 we can't understand god's grace by looking at creation We can't understand the message of salvation by by looking at the stars. It tells us a lot about the great God that we serve and the One who created us, but but you're not going to hear the Gospel and you're not going to understand His his love and His justice by observing creation itself. We cannot know about salvation and these other personal attributes of our Creator unless He shows us something more. In terms of Colossians 1, verse 15, our problem is God is invisible. We, we can't see Him. Uh, we don't know who He is by, by looking and going, oh, there He is. That's what He's like. He doesn't have a body. He's not physical, which is how we get a lot of the information that we process in this life, right? And so we can't know Him or understand who He is completely unless this infinite God steps into our world and He reveals what is true about himself unless he steps into our life into our world and reveals 
who He is and what His character is. So over thousands of years of human history, uh, our, our human race, what we've done then is we said, well, there, there must be something great out there that, that did all this. And so people have been making myths and stories for thousands of years of what this God, what this supreme being must be like. The Egyptians believed that there were, there were a lot of heavenly beings, a lot of heavenly creatures that they called gods. And they, they lived in one heavenly realm and we lived in another heavenly realm. But they believed that, that those gods, they manifested themselves. And while they existed in the heavenly places, they would manifest themselves in our world in some physical form. And so they believed that the, the sky up there uh, was a manifestation of one of the gods. They believed that if you went to the Nile River, that that was one of the gods manifesting itself in our presence. They looked at the crocodiles. They would say, that's a god, and so on. Later on, the Greeks and the Romans, they told stories of their gods. And when they envisioned their pantheon of of, of uh, divine beings, uh, they, they pictured them a lot like us, didn't they? they? They told stories about their gods and they got drunk and they slept together and they fought and they went to war with one another. And they, Overall, they just created a lot of drama, didn't they? And their gods were in many ways just bigger and more powerful versions of us, even though they made us. Today, the god of our culture is, is science. Our, our culture thinks that we've risen above our ancestors and we believe in science as the awesome thing that is above everything else. And so our culture teaches us that ultimately we all got here by chance and accident, and, and, but science is what is eternal and it is an eternal power in which our world ultimately puts its trust. Jared and I were, were talking about this yesterday and I, we were discussing um, this concept of God's invisibility and how humankind has responded to that. I, I really... I appreciate how he, he, he stated it. He really captured the essence of this problem really well. He mentioned how people have always tried to put God in a, in a box by basing what they can know about God on what we, what we know about ourselves. They define God in terms of what we look like. And, and so people uh, create idols in order to try to picture, well, God must look like this. And so this is the God I'm going to worship. And, and then they... They try describing, well, what kind of attributes does God have? And so, so they take our attributes and then attribute those attributes to, to Him. Uh, the youth group's going through Job tonight, and, and he's talking about how in Job, they, they really misunderstood God's justice. Why? Because, because what they did is they said, well, this is what our justice looks like, so this is, must be what God's justice looks like. And so, ultimately... Um, what happens is man tries to define God by describing Him with, with human constraints. And we try to put God in this box, and what we've ended up doing is we've created gods in our own image rather than us being made in His image. Well, the Bible tells us that, that we can know God. We can know God because He desires for us to know Him. He desires for us to be in a relationship with Him. And so He's revealed Himself. He's made Himself known. He's, he's done this first through creation, in which we learn that He's powerful, that He's eternal. Um, we, we, we know of His glory partially through, through the, the universe that's around us. But He's also given us His Word. And so when you open the Scripture, you, you have God's revealed Word and, and what He reveals about Himself and His character. He tells us about who He is so that we can know the truth about who He is. However, 
He describes in today's passage how he's gone another gargantuan step, even beyond the revelation that's written in his word, in order to reveal himself to us. And this is what he did. He became one of us. He took on human flesh. He showed us perfectly what the Father is like. And so in the passage leading up to verse 15, Paul and Timothy offer this, this beautiful prayer. They're giving thanks for, the, for the, the Colossians. And they give thanks for, for this congregation. And so in verse 13, they, they shift from focusing on God and giving thanks to Him. And he, and he shifts all the, the, the words to zero in on the person of God the Son. And he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And then in verse 15, they turn to the heart of this epistle of the Colossians. And they say, Paul and Timothy say this, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Now again, this, this introduces us to the heart of, of Colossians in, in which Paul is arguing that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Whatever it is in your life that you think needs to have priority for you, whatever is taking all that time in your life, whatever takes all the energy that you're devoting to it, whether it's something that's good or whether it's evil, whether it's something that helps you in life and and helps your family and helps you to minister to others, or whether it's something that's sinful and wrong, whatever it is that you devote so much to, Colossians teaches us, that Jesus is greater and He deserves more preeminence in your life than all of these things, good and bad. And you see, the Colossians, they were being exposed to these false teachers. We don't know exactly what was being taught, but, but ultimately what they, were, what they were telling the Colossians is that Jesus is nice, that, you know, He's great, we're, we're glad for you that you found Jesus, but, but if you really want to know God, if you really want to experience a knowledge of, of God and go to the next level, then they told the Colossians, you, you need to move on past Jesus. Jesus is kind of the, He opens the door and gets you in, but, but Colossians, you all need to, to take it up a notch and, and let's go past Jesus to something even better than that. And, and here we get to the heart of the epistle where it's demonstrated Paul and Timothy are telling the Colossians, no, no, Jesus is greater Jesus is the greatest. And to know God, then you need to look no further than Jesus Christ Himself. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, uh, we, we just spent an entire series studying God's image stamped upon the human race. So we're not going to spend a lot of time building that out this morning. But if I can sum it up, it's like this. God created man to serve as His representatives on this earth and to rule as such. But because of sin, that image that God put on mankind was marred. It was broken. And then Jesus, however, but, but He came, and when Jesus came as a man, He dwelt among us. And in doing so, He restored the image. In fact, He is the perfect image of God. Where mankind failed, Jesus succeeded. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it's expressed Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. When we talk about God's glory, we're talking about the, the wow factor. Glory, glory means the, the, the wow of God. Anything that makes you go, oh my goodness, this God is incredible. That, that's His glory. The, the wow of our Creator. If, if you desire to know what God is like and you want to understand His glory, His wow, 
If you want to know Him, then look at Jesus because Jesus reveals God the Father. There's an ancient papyrus that was found some years ago and it had a note on it. It was a note from a son, a Greek soldier named Appion that he wrote to his father. And at the end of this letter, he makes an interesting comment basically saying he had put a, a, a picture of himself uh, in, in with the letter and, and sent it to his family. And he says, I, I send you a little portrait of myself painted by Uktaman. And the word that he used for the painting of himself was the same word that we find in Colossians about Jesus, the image. And so Appion, he wanted his family to remember him while he was, was absent from them. And so what he does is he sends an, an image, a picture, an, an, an icon. He sends that home to remind them of what he looked like. Now, infinitely more profound is the truth that Jesus is the image of God. And not just a, a cheap painting, but the perfect likeness of God because Jesus Himself is God. Jesus Himself is the Creator. And, and that leads us to the first main argument of the book of Colossians. Jesus is greater because He is the greater creation, Creator. All the myths, all the stories made up by men, they fall short of Jesus because He is indeed the Creator God Himself. And, and then our passage introduces us uh, this, this concept of Jesus being the Creator by, by giving Jesus a title. And He says He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, I don't know if you're like me. You, you listen to that and you go, the firstborn of all creation. What does that sound like? It sounds like He's created, doesn't it? it, it as I read that passage and think in terms that, that I've thought all my life, I mean, I'm the firstborn. I was born in 1973. I had two brothers that came after me. They didn't exist. In, until four or nine years later. I was the firstborn. I came into existence before them. So when I hear the word firstborn, those are the things and the, the, the concepts that I, I picture in my mind. Uh, in fact, firstborn of all creation, in English it sounds like Paul is telling us that Jesus was part of the creation. That He was just the first part. It was a couple hundred years after Colossians was written. There was a guy named Arius. Uh, he was born in uh, Libya. He uh, taught in Egypt as a priest there. And, and he taught that Jesus is not God. He, he was just a man. And, and Arius deceived many people and, and, and the church eventually re rejected Arianism because basically he's, he, he took this passage right here and he took it out of context. And he said, well, Jesus is the firstborn. That means God created him before he did anything else. And so before the whole earth was created, he makes Jesus first. And then Jesus participated in the rest of it. And that's not what Colossians is, is teaching. And the church ends up rejecting that heresy. Uh, you, you might recognize Arianism in its modern day form. Um, the, the church of the Jehovah Witnesses. They teach the same thing. It's the same doctrine that was heresy from the beginning. Uh, when I was in high school, I, I had a, a friend that was from the Jehovah Witness uh, cult and um, we studied a lot together and we spent a bit of time discussing this very passage and what it means that Jesus is the firstborn so what what did Paul mean when he said that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation the first thing that we need to do is, is step back from our English understanding of things if, if you're basing your understanding of scripture on your culture, then that's the first sign that you need to you know, look at some context, step back a little bit, and say, wait, wait, what, what was going on when this was written? Uh, what's going on in the passage? What does the next verse tell us? Um, and the, the firstborn 
And in the, in the world of the Bible, it carried a lot more meaning than, than the concept of being the first person chronologically, of being the first that was brought into this world. Uh, the firstborn in the Greek world, it, it had a concept of being the, 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 um, the first rank. They had the, the primary position. If you were the firstborn son, typically, usually, you were the first one born into the family, but it also meant that you were the preeminent son. When it came to the inheritance, you were going to be the one that received the larger portion of the inheritance. If you were the firstborn, you would be the one that would be in charge of, of basically carrying on the family tradition and, and, and leading the family and, and doing everything that the firstborn child was responsible for. But the firstborn wasn't always the firstborn in the Greek culture. Oftentimes it was the second or the third child that, that ended up um, receiving that, that blessing and that responsibility of the firstborn couple examples uh, Jacob if you remember him when he uh, when he received the inheritance of the firstborn when he stole it um, he was then called the firstborn later on in scripture Israel's called the firstborn but even though Israel J- Jacob was younger than his older brother Esau uh, the a generation later Reuben uh, who was the first child born into the family of Jacob he lost his position of the firstborn and, and the rights that were given uh, were, were, that belonged to that, that title were given to one of his younger, younger brothers. And so remove the modern idea of first to come into existence and replace that with the concept of first place. First in order of importance. Numero uno. The most significant one. And, and the point is this. When it comes to creation, Jesus is supreme. He is greater. Jesus must receive first place because of who He is. And so when Paul and Timothy call Him the firstborn of creation, what they're in fact saying is not that He was created as part of the creation, but that He is the Creator. And we owe Him everything because He is first place. He is priority. He is the One who is supreme. And and there are four reasons why Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Four reasons why Jesus deserves first place in your life, in your theology, in your worship, in your understanding of all things. Let's look at those in verses 16 to 18. In verse 16, uh, he first tells us that Jesus deserves first place because it was by him that all things were created. Now, now note, all things. If it was if it was or if it is a created thing, then it came into existence by the creative action of Jesus Himself. In the words of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him. Listen to this. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In other words, if it's created, Jesus made it. He created all things and, and nothing that, that has been created was made without Him. And that includes Jesus Himself. And so if He was a created being, He's included in all things, right? And so the point is, Jesus is not part of the created order. He existed before creation. All things were made by Jesus and so Jesus cannot be created being. And so we need to throw away out this heresy of Arius and the Jehovah Witnesses that teaches that Jesus was the first being that God the Father created. Now let's unpack a little bit though 
what all things looks like. Uh, look at verse, uh, as, as we move forward to verse 17. What, what do we mean by all things? Is it just physical stuff? Is it just wood and, and carpet and the stuff of this world? Is that what we mean by all things? Or does it go beyond that? What, what about angels? We, we, we talk about all of us, human beings, dogs, cats, elephants, animals, bugs, birds. I, I saw there was a study last week that they, um, they said we've, we've calculated how many birds exist on the face of the earth or above it. Um, and, and it's a lot. And, and we're able to calculate those things. Well, God knows that number already because he, Jesus created all of them. And so we, we talk about physical things, but what about angels? What about, um, what about Satan and the fallen angels? Have they all existed from all of eternity? Or were they created too? Is, is Satan an eternal person that has no beginning like Jesus? Or was he created? Well, verse 16 unpacks what we mean by all things. First, he says, in heaven and on earth. So what Jesus created is, is not limited to the stuff that's on this planet. He created all things on earth, but also all things in the, the universe, including visible and invisible, he goes on to say. And so Jesus created our solar system. He created the galaxies and everything that might beyond, be beyond our universe. And Jesus created all things that can't be seen with the human eye. He's created other dimensions of reality. He's created multiple races of beings of different kinds that don't have bodies like ours. The, the world calls these beings aliens. You hear a lot of stories about them and people being abducted and books and entire TV stations are devoted to them. Um, are they real? Not, not like they're shown on TV. Um, the world calls them aliens, but the Bible tells us that there are other beings out there. There are other intelligent creatures and other intelligent life in the universe and in other dimensions. And the Bible calls them angels. Sometimes he calls them heavenly beings. Uh, they're not all the same kind of messengers. Uh, some of these created beings, uh, he calls cherubim. They're winged ones. So some of them do have wings. Not exactly like the, the pictures that you see on the internet, but, but they do have wings. Others of them, he describes just in terms of the animals that they kind of resemble. And, and Ezekiel and John, they're trying to describe these, these living beings in heaven going, okay, I can't completely describe to you what these guys look like, but here's my best shot. And so, you know, they kind of look like an ox, and that one kind of looked like an eagle, and they, they describe them, some of those created beings, in those terms. Others of them are best described as the burning ones. We call these the seraphim. Uh, in some way, they look like they're on fire. What all that looks like, you know, one day we'll be privy to in, in eternity, and, and we'll get a little bit of a glimpse of a lot of these creatures. But right now, um, they remain invisible. Uh, but Jesus made them all. He made all of them. Including, and he gives us another description. He says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Uh, these are four terms that are used in some of the ancient Jewish writings to describe different ranks of fallen angels. So in particular, he's, he's describing here not just godly angels, but, but angels that rebelled against God uh, at, at the beginning of creation. And in the Jewish writings, they're described with different ranks. Um, and, and he uses a lot of those same terms here. He uses the same terms in Ephesians, Romans, and 1 Corinthians. Also, um, there as well, to describe these, these angels that rebelled in ages past. Uh, none of the passages explain exactly what those ranks look like or how many angels fill each of those ranks. We don't get a lot of the details other than 
within the heavenly realms, within what's invisible, within the demonic world, there are different structures to how their armies, their, their ranks are, are put together. Um, we don't get a lot of the details, but the point is, Jesus created all of it. Even Satan, even those that rebelled with Him against Jesus and against God our Father, um, and, and they stand under judgment. Even those were created by our God. Verse 16 concludes with this summary. He says, All things were created through Him and for Him. Nothing came into being without Jesus. And all things that exist were created with one purpose. Whether they, whether they rebelled against that purpose or not, they were created with the purpose to reflect and honor Jesus. They were created not only by Him, not only through Him, but they were created for Him. And many of those created beings have rebelled against Him. So the first reason explaining why Jesus is supreme, the first reason to describe why He is greater, why Jesus must receive first place in everything, the first reason why Jesus is the firstborn of all creation is that He has created everything. The second reason reaffirms what we've stated a few times already. Uh, verse 17, and He is before all things. And just briefly, uh, again, Jesus deserves supreme worship. He deserves first place in all things because He's eternal. He has no beginning. Because unlike the rest of us, He's not a created being. He was before all things. And the third reason, also in verse 17, why Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, is that He sustains all things. The Scripture goes on to declare that in Him, all things hold together. In Jesus, all things hold together. Not only did He create all things in the past, and, is, and, he, and he is also responsible for anything that still comes into existence, and not only did He exist eternally before any other created thing, or any created thing because He's not created, but it is Christ who continually keeps it all in motion. Without Him, everything would implode. John MacArthur mentions in his commentary on Colossians uh, some of the, very exp the, the early experiments that took place with protons and, and nuclear reactions. And he says this, he says, those experiments gave scientists an understanding of the incredibly powerful force that held protons together with the nucleus. Scientists have dubbed that force the strong nuclear force, but have no explanation for why it exists. The physicist George Gamow, one of the founders of the Big Bang Theory, he wrote, the fact that we live in a world in which practically every object is a potential nuclear explosive without being blown to bits is due to the extreme difficulties that attend the, start, the, startling, the, excuse me, the starting of a nuclear reaction. Carl Darrow agrees. He says, you grasp what this implies? It implies that all the massive nuclei have no right to be alive at all. Indeed, they should never have been created. And if created, they should have blown up instantly. Yet, here they all are. Here you are. Some inflexible inhibition is holding them relentlessly together. The nature of the inhibition is also a secret. One thus far reserved by nature for herself. In other words, scientists 
look at this nuclear activity and, and try to understand why does it not just all explode? Why do we not just internally combust? And why are we still held together? And scientists, they have some ideas and they've put out some theories, but they can't explain what's actually holding it all together. Now, Colossians chapter 1, is, it's not a scientific treatise about atomic forces. Again, it's, it's a hymn that was sung by the early church. But I believe that the point being made in Colossians, it provides us with an ultimate explanation for this scientific conundrum. Why do you and I not just spontaneously combust? Why does not the world just blow up into nuclear reactions one after another? Why do they not just fly off into trillions of different directions? ultimately is because not only did Jesus create all things, but today He is still holding all things together. Your very existence is not just due to His creative power, but your very existence continues today because Jesus hasn't let go. He's still holding you together. But there's a fourth reason why Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation, why He has the right to be the firstborn of all creation. But this last one, it breaks the pattern. It, it gets changed up a little bit. You see, the first three reasons take us back to Genesis chapter 1 and the results from it. When Jesus created all things and existed before all things. But in the first part of verse 18, we, we get a wrench thrown into this passage. It's composed of beautiful poetry. Again, the, the, the passage is probably an ancient hymn of the church that may have been written by Paul or may have been quoted by Paul. But, but here the flow and the meter of this music, it, it changes tone. It, it's almost like Scott's leading music up here and we're going through a beautiful one of your favorite songs and right in the middle of it he changes to a minor key and, and alters the words and, and switches the song on you. Um, the song continues, but, but the tone changes. Something different happens here. In verse 18 we read, and He is the head of the body. Now the concept of the physical universe being a body and God being the head, that was a metaphor that was used by the ancient world. Sometimes the Greeks pictured Zeus as the head of the created world. Uh, the Greek Stoics, they also saw the cosmos as a living entity and they described it as a perfect body that was governed by God. And so it wouldn't have been unusual. I'm not saying that's what Paul is saying here, but it wouldn't have been unusual for the Colossians if they were to hear Paul say something like, you know, the, the whole universe is God's body and He's the head. That was something they had been taught in some of their other religions. And so when Paul says He is the head of the body and he's talking about a creation passage, their minds are thinking still in terms of creation. It wouldn't, be, uh, out of, uh, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for some sort of metaphorical body in which Jesus is the head. And up to this point, that's what this sounds like he's saying. But then Jesus, excuse me, then Paul defines this body of Christ and he adds this the church. Jesus is the head of the body, not the created world, but the church. Well, that changes the tone of what we've been looking at these other reasons. Why is He the firstborn of creation? One of the reasons is He's the head of the church. You might be asking, well, Paul, how does Jesus being the head of the body, the church, make Him the firstborn, give us reason that He's the firstborn of creation? Thousands of years ago, Jesus created all things. They were created by Him, through Him, for Him. But after His death and resurrection, 
we're taught that He also created the church. It was something new that hadn't been revealed in the Old Testament. There were prophecies that indicated something like this could come into existence, but He didn't tell us about it. Not in its full form. And so He reveals that in the New Testament. Just like all things in heaven and on earth have been created for His glory, this new thing would also be created for Him. And in the church, one of the most incredible dynamics is that He has involved Himself in a very interpersonal relationship with His people. Now, God has always stepped into our world and and made Himself known. And He's always been about relationship. But in the church, God has done something new in a new way in which He has stepped into His creation. And He has put Himself into a personal, interpersonal relationship with His people. And there's this living relationship that we have with Jesus as we depend on Him. And His supremacy, His greatness is exhibited in His relationship and His creation of the church. Next week we're going to look and see how this gets developed and how Christ's headship over the body of Christ becomes a critical part of Jesus receiving preeminence in all things through His creation. But I want to leave you with this. Jesus is greater and he deserves preeminence he deserves first place in everything he holds you together and your very life would simply cease if he was not sustaining you even this very moment and he's in relationship with the church if you have not thrown yourself at his mercy when when you uh by 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 coming to him and and saying lord I'm i'm a sinner I'm separated from Your holiness and I need You to save me. If You've not thrown Yourself at His mercy, then You are not a part of this church. You are not a part of the body. But He invites you to that relationship with Him. He invites you to be a part of this great thing that He has created called the church, of which He is the head. If you have believed upon Jesus, upon Jesus who paid for your sins, then you are a part of the church. And, and, and He is worthy of first place in your life because He has given you life. He holds you together. He existed before all things, but He has also called you to be a part of something new and something incredible in which He is demonstrating His glory through a body of people called the church. So the question comes then, how, how, uh, how does He have first place today in my life? How does Jesus get first place in your life? How does that exhibit it? The universe, the entire universe, it was made for Him. You were made for Him. If you're not living with Christ as supreme in your daily walk, then you are failing to live for the primary purpose for which you were made. What good is a a car that sits on the side of the road with no wheels on it and somebody just leaves it there for the rest of its existence? And it rusts and it falls apart. Is it meeting its purpose? It's failing. What good is a house if there are no walls on it? If Craig goes and builds a house for somebody, but he doesn't put any siding on it. It's just a bunch of two-by-fours. There's no roof over it. It's just it's a skeleton. It's not fulfilling its purpose, is it? Is it fulfilling its purpose? Okay. I want to make sure I understood houses right. It's not fulfilling its purpose. In the same way, God created you and He created you with a purpose just like He created the entire universe universe for a purpose. 
But if you are not giving Christ preeminence in your life, and you're living in a way in which He is supreme, and He is getting first place in everything, then you are, fulfill- you are failing to fulfill your primary purpose for which you were made. He must have first place. He is worthy of first place. To quote Kent Hughes, He must have first place in everything. First place in our families. First place in our marriages. First place in our professions. First place in our mission and ministry. First place in matters of the intellect. First place in time. First place in love. First place in conversation. First place in pleasures. First in eating. First in play. First in athletics. First in what we watch. First place in art. First place in music. First place in worship. Let us give Him first place. Father, we thank You. We thank You for revealing who You are to us. We thank You that we know that You are powerful, that You are divine. And we, we can tell this from creation. And there are some things, a few things that we can gather from just looking at the, the stars and the, the world around us. But You love us. And You want us to know You. And You went beyond that and You gave us Your Word. And so we thank You that You have taught us not only that You are a great God that created all things, but, but You are a personal God. You are loving. You are gracious. You are just. You are holy. You are omnipotent, omniscient. Your providence reigns over this world. We know these things because You've revealed Yourself in Your Word. But we, most of all, we thank You that even beyond these things, You've revealed Yourself to us in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And that Jesus is the perfect image of You. That He is God. And He is the perfect representation of You because He is the Creator. And while we can't completely understand the, the concepts of the Trinity and all that unfolds with that, we accept what You revealed to us about Yourself in the person of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We thank You that You have revealed Your Son who perfectly shows us who You are. And so Father, I pray that as we consider Jesus being our Creator, the firstborn of all creation, Lord God, help us to remember that everything was created by Him. Help us to remember that He existed before everything else. Help us to remember that our very existence is held together by Him. He sustains the very atoms which make up this thing called me, us, you. Father, I I pray that You would help us to remember that Jesus is the head of the church. And as those who are part of this body, we have the incredible privilege of being a part of this incredible interpersonal relationship with Your Son, Jesus Christ. So let us not forget this day that Jesus deserves first place. I pray that He would receive that in our lives in everything we do. Amen.